This morning we're looking at the holiness of God. And it's a topic that always when I, I speak of this theme, this subject, there is always an apprehension, there's, uh, there's fear and trembling. Because I always feel inadequate. That, that you're never going to do a good enough job talking about this. And I hope that by the end of the message today you will get a glimpse of some of the stuff that I go through when, when preparing something like this. Now last week we spoke about the glory of God and how Moses, in that glorious encounter, wanted to see, was thirsting, was hungry for more of that glory. This morning I want to look at something related to that, which is, which is the holiness of God. We will not look at it just as a, as a theological truth, a doctrine that has to be believed, which it is. We will see it as, as, as it applies, how is it that we, we live in the, in the midst of that holiness? How do we apply it in our everyday lives and the things that we do? And as you read the Bible, you will notice that it talks a lot about the glory of God and the holiness of God. Many times the, the statements come together or very close together. Because God is both glorious and holy. Yet God never says to us in his word, He never says, be glorious as I am glorious. And anyone who does glory must glory in the Lord because God will not share his glory with anything or anyone. So anytime that we share in that glory even as, as subjects because of the glorious God, we are his glorious people. In that sense, we are subject to the glory of God. So if there's anything we are to glory about, it's, it's Him, exactly. However, God does say to His children, be holy, for I am holy. And what does that mean for us? Let's pull back a bit and say, well, it's the way we live. It has to apply with the way we live, with the standards that we live ourselves every day, the decisions that we make. And we all need some standards to live by. There are many, of course, but we can, I suppose, roughly summarise them under three categories. Firstly, you can live by your own standard. In Judges we read, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, Judges 21-25. Today, as it was then, we see that a lot of people are living this way. This is the philosophy behind do your own thing. Heard that statement. Do what's best for you. Okay? We see a rise in the love of self. Narcissism, which is individualism taken to to an extreme. So you're not accountable to anyone or anything. You're accountable just simply to yourself. 
Be true to yourself, right? You heard that one. That's behind your own standard. So you can live that way. Many people do. Increasingly so. Secondly, you live by others' standards. This is when you do and follow what everybody else is doing. It could be your friends, it could be the media, it could be a group that you're part of, it could be society at large. Yet the Bible also speaks against this. Exodus 23.2 says, Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give a testimony, and then it applies it in one, in one sense, it, it applies it in, in, in the courts, in the lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. So God there is instructing Israel that they should not follow the crowd in doing evil. He adds that the people should not change their, their testimony after the crowd in, in perverting justice. This happens a lot in juries. Now, I don't know if anybody here has ever served in jury duty. I can't serve in a jury because I'm I'm part of the clergy. Uh, But if you have, I'm I'm told that there's always one or two people who hold out for whatever reason. I wonder if their sort of their conscience is pricking them and saying, I can't agree with the rest here because I can't. This is something heavier. We're sending somebody to jail. Now, popular opinion is generally not God's opinion. Most often it is not. And so he warns people against following the wisdom of the crowd. Just because everybody else is doing it doesn't mean it's right. Or if everybody even votes for it doesn't mean that God's approved of it. So these first two are the core beliefs in atheism and materialism, which has taken over the West for the last 150 years, I suppose. There is no throne, no ultimate authority of the universe that we must answer to. In humanism, yes, there is a throne in humanism, but man sits upon it. And they're saying now that God is not necessary for ethics, for the standards. They follow the words of the Greek philosopher Protagoras who said, man is the measure of all things. And Frank Sinatra put it into words when he said, I did it my way. And we are witnessing today what happens when the man is the measure of all things. It's more than just trying to sort out between good and evil. Now we have to sort out between normal and weird. Much of this defies even the old rules of logic and reason. It does. Because you're lifting feelings above reason. Thankfully for believers, there is a a much better way to live. And and the third way is God's standard. God's standard. 
This is what believers have chosen to live by. We have recognised that there is someone much wiser, much greater, much holier who sets a standard for what is ultimately good and what is evil. God is not only perfectly good, he is the very source and standard of goodness. Also, this standard of goodness is is a constant. It does not change according to the years or according to the mood or the how everybody feels about it. Because God does not change. This is why Moses declared, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? And, and listen to these words. Glorious in holiness. There you have the two of them together. Glorious in holiness. Fearful in praises. Doing wonders. And that's from the New King's New King James Version. Now, God's holiness is not an aspect of who he is or what he does. No, God's holiness is the essence of who he is. So, if I were to to ask how is the holiness of God revealed, the only right answer would be in everything he does. Paul Tripp says, and I quote, God is holy in every attribute and every action. He is holy in justice. He is holy in love. He is holy in mercy. He is holy in power. He is holy in sovereignty. He is holy in wisdom. He is holy in patience. He is holy in anger. He is holy in grace. He is holy in faithfulness. He is holy in compassion. He is even holy in his holiness. End of quote. And we need to be constantly reminding ourselves of this because I hear the word holy a lot and it is not in the context of God. Holy cow. Holy Batman. And there are other words we, which we cannot use, we shouldn't use. What we're doing when we're saying that is actually demeaning. It's actually, yeah, we, we, we are demeaning God and his holiness. We're trying to make him more friendly and that's all, don't, don't worry about it, mate. It's all right, it's just the way we talk. No, no, language is important. And if you hear yourself saying it, you know, repent. Say, sorry, Lord, I shouldn't use that language, okay? Not here, not at work, not in front of other believers, not in front of my family, because the moment you're doing that, you're belittling God, which we should never do. Because only God is holy. He sets the standard for holiness. So we need to constantly remind ourselves of this. Because everything we face is under the careful sovereignty of a holy God. Even though it doesn't appear this way, the Lord is ruling. 
evil, injustice, corruption will not be forever with us. Satan will not have the final victory. God is and will always be worthy of your trust for this one reason. He is holy. He will defeat every evil thing that has ever made our lives sad, difficult and deliver us, his people, to a world free of all that is sinful and wrong and subject to corruption and decay. Because God is holy. So let's look at our passage with that introduction in the background. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Glory. We spoke more about this last week, the glory of God. So in a passage that that helps us understand God's holiness comes to us from the prophet Isaiah. We have looked at this passage a couple of years ago. But here in verses 1 and 2, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. So Isaiah's vision is, is in the, the precincts of the, the temple in Jerusalem. While standing back, Isaiah could see the train of the Lord's long robe filling the temple. And the, the word seraph in, in Hebrew means fiery ones. They are angels each having three pairs of wings. With two they covered their faces because they could not gaze directly at the glory of God. And with another pair of wings they covered their feet because feet are a sign of impurity. Last week we spoke of how Moses wanted to see the glory of God, but he couldn't. He couldn't and then still live to tell about it. Here, and and, and Moses was a human being, made of flesh and blood like you and me, but here it appears that not even these heavenly beings, angels serving in heaven, were able to contemplate the glory of God. That's how holy and glorious He is. So if not even the angels are able to do that, what hope have we got? <clears throat> he truly is glorious, as Moses said, in His holiness. So let's look at holiness a little bit closer in verses 3 to 4. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. The seraphim, or the angels, the fiery ones, they weren't directly addressing the Lord but calling out, to one another in in an antiphonal manner. At the sound of their voices, the whole temple started shaking and filled with smoke. 
must have been terrifying, amazing sight. They're proclaiming God's glorious nature, his character, his holiness, his presence. Holiness at its root describes someone or, or something which is set apart from other people or things. Here it refers to the absolute moral purity of God and the absolute moral distance between God and his creatures, human creatures. What is the Lord set apart from? He is set apart from creation in that the Lord God is is not a creature and he exists outside of all creation. And one of the favourite expressions whenever you're talking to someone about the nature of God, it's like, well, who made God? Well, no one. God is. If somebody made him, he would not be God. He would be a creature. He exists outside of all of creation. If all of creation were to dissolve, the Lord would still remain. He is set apart from humanity in that his nature, his essence is divine, not human. So don't push your nature on God. It doesn't work like that. God is not a superman. God is not merely smarter than us, stronger than us, older than us, better than us, prettier than us. He is all that and infinitely more. Beyond description. We simply can't measure God with our ruler or standard because he sets the standard. We don't put the ruler, we don't set the standard. He sets it. So for the angels, it wasn't enough to simply say that the Lord was holy. In the Hebrew language, intensity is communicated by repetition. Jesus said, verily, verily. Right? Holy, holy, holy can also be a pointer, and it probably is a pointer to the Trinity, God in three persons, blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Godhead. To say holy, holy, holy is the Lord is to declare his holiness to the highest possible degree. He is, in other words, he is really, really, really holy. Also, holy, holy, holy is is meant to stretch the boundaries of your imagination. Whatever you think of when you hear that God is holy, know that God is entirely different in category, in essence, even in definition, in category of what it means to be holy. He is even holier than you ever thought holiness could be. This is why 
is what you need to understand when we talk and sing and even use the word holy in our everyday language that please this is this is serious stuff this is in 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 another category when we speak of God's holiness this is why we need to approach the word holy with fear and trembling when we're talking about it so we come back to what it means for us in verses 5 to 7 Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen King, the Lord Almighty. And then one seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So with that description of holiness, we, we, we see now, we understand a little bit of what Isaiah was getting at when he, he was confronted by that holiness. He, and note that the prophet, he, he wasn't confronted or rebuked for his sinfulness by the Lord or even by the angels. This recognition of his, how dirty he was, how unworthy he was, came from within. And by by all outward appearances, Isaiah was a righteous, godly man. Yet when he saw the Lord of hosts on his throne, he said, woe to me. He saw how dirty he was in comparison, how, how sinful and bad, unworthy. I, I, I cannot possibly be here, witness all of this and still live to tell about it. The man who as a prophet would pronounce God's woes on God's people and God's enemies, first of all had to pronounce woe on himself. If he was to preach to others, first of all he had to preach to himself. He doesn't plead for mercy or even make a vow if God would spare his life. He simply said, I'm done for. I can't say anything. And it's refreshing for me, it's, it's refreshing that to, to see the way the prophet deals honestly with this predicament. And, and, and I think it, gives, it should give us encouragement because this is when we approach God. We, we have to see, we have to recognise just how unworthy we truly are. Many would say, compared to that that attitude, right, of humility and and, and total unworthiness, many, however, would say today, what, I've done nothing wrong. You know, not so bad. Look at that guy. 
it's only in the face of God's holiness that you fully realise that sin is more than just a list of bad behaviours and what you said today and did today. Sin is a disastrous condition of the heart that causes us to willingly and repeatedly rebel against the authority of God and to do our own thing. Sin is, is, is much more, it's, it's not something that you're going to discover in, a, in an x-ray and say, well, that, there it is, that's your sin. And once we remove that, you'd be fine. You'd be able to recover like a tumour. It's easy, right? It's difficult as it is. It's, you can see it. No! Since the Garden of Eden, sin mortality occupies every cell of our body. And if that destroys us, it destroys the world we live in and it separates us from God, which is an eternal condition. But thankfully, God has a solution, has a solution to this man of unclean lips. We know what that's about. He lives in the midst of unclean people with unclean lips. We know what that's about. Uh, Unless God steps in and does something he could not do, then he's doomed. And he's right. Here comes the cleansing. The cleansing, the, the atonement. Atonement also means covering for sin. It was provided by way of a hot coal. Remember that the name of the angels were, were the fiery ones. And here again, we have a picture of, of fire. One angel flew to Isaiah with a live coal, still hot and burning. Remember how Isaiah complained that he was a man of unclean lips? And it's precisely the unclean lips which are purified by the angels. The angels themselves, they had to use tongs to grab the coal, right? The angels weren't stupid enough to grab the coal with their hands. You know what that does. And they bring it to Isaiah's lips. It must have been incredibly painful, right? I don't know if you're ever stupid enough to put coal in your lips. Not even five-year-olds are that stupid, surely. And, and they bring it to, to, to purify his, 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 his lips. And yet there's no... He doesn't cry of pain. Isn't that a miracle? Notice that? Fire is fascinating, isn't it? It can destroy, but it can also cleanse. And this is what happens when purifying gold, right? But fire also converts mass into energy, which is what happens when you burn coal. The Bible describes our Lord as a consuming fire. And God's holiness is the reason for him being a consuming fire. 
and he burns up anything unholy. To get a picture of a consuming fire, the centre of the sun, I think they say is like 5 billion degrees Celsius or something. So something hotter than the one who made the sun or the suns or the stars. That is God. Consumes everything and anything within its path. But it is with the fire of God's own purity that the repentant are made holy. It was just enough portion not to destroy Isaiah with the coal, but enough of a dose to make him, to cleanse him, to make him holy. And in and of ourselves, try as we may, we cannot make ourselves pure. We cannot make ourselves holy. You don't become holy by becoming a monk or doing a meditation course online or making a sacrifice. Only a holy God can make us holy and he did it through, in the case of Isaiah, it was through the angels with coal. In the case for us, there's a better way, Jesus' death on the cross. This is what it says in Hebrews 10.10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all. Did you get that? Made holy by the sacrifice. Only God could do it. You see, God could not simply, because of his holiness, God could not simply, and, and I've had this argument before, maybe you too, why couldn't just God just say, forget about it, forget about all the sins, let's just wipe the slate clean and start again? Because God's holiness would not allow that. God's own standard cannot do that with sin. Because if God would do that, he would no longer be God. He would no longer be holy. God could not simply arbitrarily forget our sins for this would undermine his perfect character. There had to be a punishment for sin. Without blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The shocking thing, the shocking thing is that God took that punishment on himself through the Son. perfectly bringing together his holiness and justice together with his mercy and grace. Both things together in the one glorious, marvellous act of the cross. And when you think about it, you know that without the holiness of God, There would be no need for the cross, would there? There would be no need for any of this. Without the holiness of God, there would be no standard. There would be no justice. What what would justice mean anyway? There would be no standard for morality. 
Why would there be, need, be a need for a family? Why? No need to talk about gender or purity or even life or death. Why? It's all meaningless. Everything is meaningless without this understanding of the holiness of God. Again, what does that mean for us? So to understand that, we go to verse 8. The calling. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. What would, what would you do if you were called like Isaiah? Who would go for us? And Isaiah said, I'll go. You have just witnessed the creator of the universe in his glory and holiness, believing that you were going to be obliterated by his presence, just zapped beyond existence. But no, instead of burning you to oblivion, he decides in his mercy and love to purify you and forgive your sins making it possible for you to share in that holiness. How would you answer? Do I have a choice? Well, if you were Moses, you would have answered, please send someone else. If you were Jeremiah, I'm too young. If you were Gideon, you would find a fleece, a little mat or something, and put out the fleece trying to make sure it was really God who was calling you. If you were Jonah, you would simply run away. We see that Isaiah is is a rare breed when he answers, Here I am, send me. He puts his hand up even before knowing what he had to do, which is pretty rare as well. Now, first, tell me what I've got to do, okay? Then I'll say yes or no. Yes, people like Moses and Isaiah had specific calling on their lives, whether it was to lead a rebellious people to the promised land or was to proclaim God's condemnation on the people and and the nations around. That was the life of the prophet. But it's not just them who were called. Hey Paul, you were called as a pastor, it's fine, it's good for you. You're called to be holy, fair enough. Others are called to be missionaries, like her sister Naomi. That leaves me out. I can do what I want. (laughs) It's not that simple. No, 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 no. All of us have been called to be servants of the Most High God. Whatever you're calling, we use that expression and we mean it. Because holiness is the essence of God's character, it becomes our calling as well as his children by inheritance. If you are God's son or daughter, You have been called to be holy. You can't escape it. Sorry. There's no exclusion clause. It's like, okay, Dennis, you don't have to be holy, okay? No. 
This is what Peter says. As obedient children, 1 Peter 1, 14-16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's, that's, that's about as clear as it comes, isn't it? Yes, you are both holy and you have been called to be holy. If you are God's child, you stand before him as, as righteous because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ has been given over to you like the angels brought the coal to Isaiah, the sacrifice of the cross brought atonement for those who surrender to him. And therefore there's an implication of that. For this reason the holiness of God runs against, it's not something we could have done, it's something that he has done, so this runs against our pride, our self-sufficiency and drives us to the Saviour. And like Isaiah, we, all we can do is cry, woe is me. But by your mercy here I am, here I stand. And only the Saviour the Holy Saviour is able to bring unholy people to a holy God and declare them to be holy through his sacrifice. That's the beauty of it. Again, just to reiterate, to say you are holy means that you have been set apart by God's grace for God's purpose. Your allegiance is no longer to the kingdom of your success and your happiness and your well-being, but to the progress of God's glory and his grace. And where do you do this? You do this wherever you are, whomever you are, and whatever it is you're doing. This is where you are to show how holy you are before God. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, this is what we read. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. There it is. It's not an option. It's not like you tick a box and say, well, okay, yeah, I'll just squeeze through. No, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So as you ponder the impossibility of this call, remember that God never calls you to a task without first enabling you to do it. Bringing the coal to your lips is his gift to you. But now make the effort to live up to that calling. That's the effort. And says here, make every effort to live at peace and to be holy. And God enables us through the Holy Spirit who lives within us to do that which is impossible. I can do all things because Christ strengthens me. And the Holy Spirit will not be living in you 
if you are unholy. Because we are talking about God living inside of you through the Holy Spirit. So therefore you need to live up to your calling, live up to the holiness that you have been, has been bestowed and given to you as a gift. How do we react? Make every effort. Live up to your name. Live up to your calling. What is the reaction? It's always worship and gratitude, isn't it? But also recognise that we have the wisdom, the strength we need to surrender to his call and humbly accept our call and say, yeah, thank you, Lord, here I am. What do you want me to do? That's our calling. May our lives be lived for his glory. Amen?